Chapter One, Part Two of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Crimes, Volume Three, Mary Stuart, by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter One, Part Two. Mary had but one hope remaining that the sight of the English fleet would compel her little squadron to turn back. But she had to fulfil her destiny. This same day, a fog, a very unusual occurrence in summer time, extended all over the channel, and caused her to escape the fleet, for it was such a dense fog that one could not see from stern to mast. It lasted the whole of Sunday, the day after the departure, and did not lift till the following day, Monday, at eight o'clock in the morning. The little flotilla, which all this time had been sailing haphazard, had got among so many reefs that if the fog had lasted some minutes longer the galley would certainly have grounded on some rock and would have perished like the vessel that had been seen engulfed on leaving port but thanks to the fog's clearing the pilot recognised the scottish coast and steering his four boats with great skill through all the dangers on the twentieth of august he put in at leith where no preparation had been made for the queen's reception nevertheless Scarcely had she arrived there than the chief persons of the town met together and came to felicitate her. Meanwhile, they hastily conducted some wretched nags, with harnesses all falling in pieces, to conduct the Queen to Edinburgh. At sight of this, Mary could not help weeping again, for she thought of the splendid palfreys and hackneys of her French knights and ladies, and at this first view Scotland appeared to her in all its poverty. Next day it was to appear to her in all its wildness. After having passed one night at Holyrood Palace, during which, says Brantome, five to six hundred rascals from the town, instead of letting her sleep, came to give her a wild morning greeting on wretched fiddles and little rebecks. She expressed a wish to hear mass. Unfortunately, the people of Edinburgh belonged almost entirely to the Reformed religion, so that, furious at the Queen's giving such a proof of papistry at her first appearance, they entered the church by force, armed with knives, sticks, and stones, with the intention of putting to death the poor priest, her chaplain. He left the altar, and took refuge near the Queen, while Mary's brother, the prior of St. Andrew's, who was more inclined from this time forward to be a soldier than an ecclesiastic, seized a sword, and placing himself between the people and the Queen, declared that he would kill with his own hand the first man who should take another step. This firmness, combined with the Queen's imposing and dignified air, checked the zeal of the reformers. As we have said, Mary had arrived in the midst of all the heat of the first religious wars. A zealous Catholic, like all her family on the maternal side, she inspired the Huguenots with the gravest fears. Besides, a rumour had got about that Mary, instead of landing at Leith, as she had been obliged by the fog, was to land at Aberdeen. There, it was said, she would have found the Earl of Huntley, one of the peers who had remained loyal to the Catholic faith, and who, next to the family of Hamilton, was the nearest and most powerful ally to the royal house. Seconded by him, and by twenty thousand soldiers from the north, she would then have marched upon Edinburgh, and have re-established the Catholic faith throughout Scotland. Events were not slow to prove that this accusation was false. As we have stated, Mary was much attached to the prior of St. Andrews, a son of James V, and of a noble descendant of the Earls of Mar, who had been very handsome in her youth, and who, in spite of the well-known love for her of James V, and the child who had resulted, had none the less wedded Lord Douglas of Loch Leven, by whom she had had two other sons, 
the elder named William and the younger George, who were thus half-brothers of the regent. Now scarcely had she reascended the throne than Mary had restored to the prior of St. Andrews the title of Earl of Mar, that of his maternal ancestors, and as that of the Earl of Murray had lapsed since the death of the famous Thomas Randolph, Mary, in her sisterly friendship for James Stuart, hastened to add this title to those which she had already bestowed upon him. But here difficulties and complications arose. For the new Earl of Murray, with his character, was not a man to content himself with a barren title, while the estates which were crown property since the extinction of the male branch of the old earls had been gradually encroached upon by powerful neighbours, among whom was the famous Earl of Huntley, whom we have already mentioned. The result was that, as the Queen judged that in this quarter her orders would probably encounter opposition, under pretext of visiting her possessions in the north, she placed herself at the head of a small army, commanded by her brother, the Earl of Mar and Murray. The Earl of Huntley was the less duped by the apparent pretext of this expedition, in that his son, John Corden, for some abuse of his powers, had just been condemned to a temporary imprisonment. He, notwithstanding, made every possible submission to the Queen, sending messages in advance to invite her to rest in his castle, and following up the messengers in person, to renew his invitation viva voce. Unfortunately, at the very moment when he was about to join the Queen, the governor of Inverness, who was entirely devoted to him, was refusing to allow Mary to enter this castle, which was a royal one. It is true that Murray, aware that it does not do to hesitate in the face of such rebellions, had already had him executed for high treason. This new act of firmness showed Huntley that the young queen was not disposed to allow the Scottish lords a resumption of the almost sovereign power humbled by her father, so that, in spite of the extremely kind reception she accorded him, as he learned while in camp that his son, having escaped from prison, had just put himself at the head of his vassals, he was afraid that he should be thought, as doubtless he was, a party to the rising, and he set out that same night to assume command of his troops, his mind made up, as Mary only had with her seven to eight thousand men to risk a battle, giving out, however, as Buck Luke had done in his attempt to snatch James V from the hands of the Douglases, that it was not at the Queen he was aiming, but solely at the Regent, who kept her under his tutelage and perverted her good intentions. Mary, who knew that often the entire piece of a reign depends on the firmness one displays at its beginning, immediately summoned all the northern barons whose estates bordered on his to march against Huntley. All obeyed, for the house of Corden was already so powerful that each feared it might become still more so. But, however, it was clear that if there was a hatred for the subject, there was no great affection for the Queen, and that the greater number came without fixed intentions than with the idea of being led by circumstances. The two armies encountered near Aberdeen. Murray at once posted the troops he had brought from Edinburgh, and of which he was sure, on the top of rising ground, and drew up in tears on the hill-slope all his northern allies. Huntley advanced resolutely upon them, and attacked his neighbours the Highlanders, who after a short resistance retired in disorder. His men immediately threw away their lances, and drawing their swords, crying, Cordon! Cordon! pursued the fugitives, and believed they had already gained the battle, when they suddenly ran right against the main body of Murray's army, which remained motionless as a rampart of iron, and which, with its long lances, had the advantage of its adversaries, who were armed only with their claymores. It was then the turn of the cordons to draw back, seeing which, the northern clans rallied and returned to the fight, 
each soldier having a sprig of heather in his cap that his comrades might recognise him. This unexpected movement determined the day. The Highlanders ran down the hillside like a torrent, dragging along with them every one who could have wished to oppose their passage. Then Murray, seeing that the moment had come for changing the defeat into a rout, charged with his entire cavalry. Huntley, who was very stout and very heavily armed, fell and was crushed beneath the horse's feet. John Corden, taken prisoner in his flight, was executed at Aberdeen three days afterwards. Finally, his brother, too young to undergo the same fate at this time, was shut up in a dungeon and executed later, the day he reached the age of sixteen. Mary had been present at the battle, and the calm and courage she displayed had made a lively impression on her wild defenders, who all along the road had heard her say that she would have liked to be a man, to pass her days on horseback, her nights under a tent, to wear a coat of mail, a helmet, a buckler, and at her side a broadsword. Mary made her entry into Edinburgh amidst general enthusiasm, for this expedition against the Earl of Huntley, who was a Catholic, had been very popular among the inhabitants, who had no very clear idea of the real motives which had caused her to undertake it. They were of the reformed faith, the Earl was a papist, there was an enemy the less. That is all they thought about. Now, therefore, the Scotch, amid their acclamations, whether via voce or by written demands, expressed the wish that their queen, who was without issue by Francis II, should remarry. Mary agreed to this, and yielding to the prudent advice of those about her, she decided to consult upon this marriage Elizabeth, whose heir she was, in her title of granddaughter of Henry the Seventh, in the event of the Queen of England's dying without posterity. Unfortunately, she had not always acted with like circumspection, for at the death of Mary Tudor, known as Bloody Mary, she had laid claim to the throne of Henry the Eighth, and, relying on the illegitimacy of Elizabeth's birth, had with the Dauphin assumed sovereignty over Scotland, England, and Ireland, and had had coins struck with this new title and plate engraved with these new armorial bearings. Elizabeth was nine years older than Mary, that is to say, at this time she had not yet attained her thirtieth year. She was not merely her rival as queen then, but as woman. As regards education, she could sustain comparison with advantage, for if she had less charm of mind, she had more solidity of judgment, first in politics, philosophy, history, rhetoric, poetry, and music. Besides English, her maternal tongue, she spoke and wrote to perfection Greek, Latin, French, Italian, and Spanish. But while Elizabeth excelled Mary on this point, in her turn Mary was more beautiful, and above all more attractive, than her rival. Elizabeth had, it is true, a majestic and agreeable appearance, bright quick eyes, a dazzling white complexion, but she had red hair, a large foot. Elizabeth had bestowed a pair of her shoes on the University of Oxford. Their size would point to their being those of a man of average stature and a powerful hand, while Mary, on the contrary, with her beautiful ashy fair hair. Several historians assert that Mary Stuart had black hair, but Brantome, who had seen it, as we have said, he accompanied her to Scotland, affirms that it was fair, and, so saying, he, the executioner, took off her headdress in a contemptuous manner to display her hair already white, that while alive, however, she feared not to show, nor yet to twist and frizz as in the days when it was so beautiful and so fair. Her noble open forehead, eyebrows which could only be blamed for being so regularly arched that they looked as if drawn by a pencil, eyes continually beaming with the witchery of fire, a nose of perfect Grecian outline, a mouth so ruby-red and gracious that it seemed that, 
as a flower opens but to let its perfume escape, so it could not open but to give passage to gentle words. With a neck white and graceful as a swan's, hands of alabaster, with a form like a goddess's and a foot like a child's, Mary was a harmony in which the most ardent enthusiast for sculptured form could have found nothing to reproach. This was indeed Mary's great and real crime, one single imperfection in face or figure, and she would not have died upon the scaffold. Besides, to Elizabeth, who had never seen her, and who consequently could only judge by hearsay, this beauty was a great cause of uneasiness and of jealousy, which she could not even disguise, and which showed itself unceasingly in eager questions. One day, when she was chatting with James Melville about his mission to her court, Mary's offer to be guided by Elizabeth in a choice of a husband, a choice which the Queen of England had seemed at first to wish to see fixed on the Earl of Leicester. She led the Scotch ambassador into a cabinet, where she showed him several portraits with labels in her own handwriting. The first was of the Earl of Leicester. As this nobleman was precisely the suitor chosen by Elizabeth, Melville asked the Queen to give it him to show to his mistress, but Elizabeth refused, saying that it was the only one she had. Melville then replied, smiling, that being in possession of the original she might well part with the copy, but Elizabeth would on no account consent. This little discussion ended, she showed him the portrait of Mary Stuart, which she kissed very tenderly, expressing to Melville a great wish to see his mistress. "'That is very easy, madam,' he replied. "'Keep to your room, on the pretext that you are indisposed, and set out incognito for Scotland, as King James V set out for France, when he wanted to see Madeleine de Velo, whom he married afterwards.' "'Alas!' replied Elizabeth. "'I would love to do so, but it is not so easy as you think. "'Nevertheless, tell your queen that I love her tenderly, "'and that I wish we could live more in friendship than we have done up to the present.' "'Then passing to a subject which she seemed to have wanted to broach for a long time. "'Melville,' she continued, "'tell me frankly, is my sister as beautiful as they say?' "'She has that reputation,' replied Melville. "'But I cannot give your majesty any idea of her beauty, having no point of comparison.' "'I will give you one,' the queen said. "'Is she more beautiful than I?' "'Madam,' replied Melville, "'you are the most beautiful woman in England, and Mary Stuart is the most beautiful woman in Scotland.' "'Then which of the two is taller?' asked Elizabeth, who was not entirely satisfied by this answer, clever as it was. "'My mistress, madam,' responded Melville, "'I am obliged to confess it.' "'Then she is too tall.' Elizabeth said sharply, "'For I am tall enough. "'And what are her favourite amusements?' she continued. "'Madam,' Melville replied, "'hunting, riding, performing on the lute, and the harpsichord.' "'Is she skilled upon the latter?' Elizabeth inquired. "'Oh, yes, madam,' answered Melville. "'Skilled enough for a queen.' There the conversation stopped, but as Elizabeth was herself an excellent musician, she commanded Lord Hunson to bring Melville to her at a time when she was at the, her harpsichord, so that he could hear her without her seeming to have the air of playing for him. In fact, the same day, Hunson, agreeably to her instructions, led the ambassador into a gallery separated from the Queen's apartment merely by tapestry, so that his guide having raised it, Melville at his leisure could hear Elizabeth, who did not turn round until she had finished the piece, which, however, she was playing with much skill. When she saw Melville, she pretended to fly into a passion, and even wanted to strike him, but her anger calmed down by little and little at the ambassador's compliments, and ceased altogether when he admitted that Mary Stuart was not her equal. But this was not all. Proud of her triumph, Elizabeth desired, also, that Melville should see her dance. The 
Accordingly, she kept back her dispatches for two days that he might be present at a ball that she was giving. These dispatches, as we have said, contained the wish that Mary Stuart should espouse Leicester, but this proposal could not be taken seriously. Leicester, whose personal worth was besides sufficiently mediocre, was of birth too inferior to aspire to the hand of the daughter of so many kings. Thus Mary replied that such an alliance would not become her. Meanwhile, something strange and tragic came to pass. End of chapter 1, part 2